from the symptomatic studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another underground episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. We're all used to aphids sucking the life out of our rosebuds and pepper plants. But did you know that some aphids do their dirty work underground? I'm Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll discuss how to handle destructive root aphids. Plus, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and interestingly intellectual inculcations. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you protecting the roots of your precious plants right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, coming up later in the show, what can you do when, quote, aphids are the root of your problems? In the meantime, lots of your calls at 888-492-9444. Dale, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Dale. I hope you're ducky. I am just ducky. Thanks for mentioning that, (laughs) Dale. How are you, sir? I'm just fine, and I'm just fine in southwestern middle Tennessee. Okay. Near where? Uh, About 40 miles north of Florence, Alabama, and about 30 miles east of the Tennessee River, where where it started to become uh, Kentucky Lake. Yeah. No, that's... uh, Now, you're not in what's called the Tri-County area, are you? No, I don't believe so. Okay. You would know because you can walk to Virginia from there. Yeah, no, no. All right. I'm, Go ahead. I'm in Lewis County. Lewis County. Lewis County, named after Meriwether Lewis, who's buried about five miles up the road. Oh, here. that's excellent. And, uh, and uh, the Lewis Trail, and um, what was his partner's name? I'm blanking out. <laughs> Lewis Clark. and Clark. Yes, Lewis and Clark. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Shows, don't okay. get old, kids. Your brain stops functioning. <laughs> All right, Dale, what can we do you for? Uh, okay, I had uh, uh, a, an event last fall where I was, I was mowing. We live on a small farm, and I, and I was mowing a little field that, that the previous owner of the farm had, had kept hogs on. Mm-hmm. And I and I noticed in the mowing that uh, those little low areas, the ones that used to be the hog wallers, mm-hmm. uh, had had better grass in in them. And I and I, in a conversation with one of the old farmers nearby, you know, he he speculated that that was because because they were the hog wallers, and I still had that. Hog poop residue, oh yeah, in them, and and maybe a little better moisture, and and then, and this is what led me to you to my call to you. 
and and that is that that uh, he said, well, do you remember the tomatoes you had in your first year or two of gardens? And they were they were really tremendous producers. And he said that was because Walker, previous owner, uh, he said he always treated that garden with hog manure. And uh, and so I speculated, we've got a few cows. In the wintertime, you can get cow manure. You can, you know, go around, pick it up with a shovel. And, right. And uh, uh, and it's it's not high moisture content because they're they're eating hay at this time. Right. And and I think I know where I could get some hog manure. I would not. So I you would, would not. No. Um, hog manure, pig manure. It's always been very controversial in the gardening community. It, people didn't want to talk about it because they really weren't sure of the safety. So even though yeah. they have cloven hooves, they will eat meat. They're scavengers. They'll eat anything. And one thing we know for sure is their poop is full of parasites and possible uh, pathogens. Now, people misunderstand that. They think they're going to get sick or get worms by eating the tomatoes that were grown in that uh, kind of soil. But that's not what happens. The danger is to people being around the soil, handling it, uh, working in it. And there's been very little research into the nutrient value of that manure because it is considered not usable in agriculture, whereby there's a tremendous amount of research on cow manure. And composted cow manure is one of the best balanced manures out there. It delivers a wide range of nutrients in the proper concentrations. It's also considered a cold manure. You know, horse manure, when you pile it up, you see steam coming out the pile. You're not going to see that as much with cow manure. So it is a complete but gentle fertilizer, and I would absolutely uh, use that around tomatoes and other garden plants. Okay, and how long would how long would you compost it until it until it smells like dirt? Well, that that is the ideal. That is the uh, the Spalding guide for this kind of stuff. Now, do you have any other compost piles? Do you do you compost leftover hay, or you know, do you collect leaves? Yes, yes. And and there's, uh, I mean, it's just a big pile out by the garden. That's excellent. So what you so just what you want to do. It on either on a warm day over the winter or as soon as it starts to warm up, you want to turn that pile. You want to take the stuff that's on the top and pitchfork it over next to the existing pile and keep doing that till you get down uh, to the bottom of the original pile. Now, that will be completely composted. Compost is always done at the base, because it's the least convenient for gardeners. But when you move it around 
and repile it, that material will begin to compost much faster from the aeration you achieved. So I would use anything on the bottom, even if there's still a little hay or straw or anything like that in there, I wouldn't worry about it. It's probably denatured. I might worry about hay now that I think about it um, because you don't want to introduce seed heads to your garden. Uh, but the more composted it is, the better. It's, I almost hesitate to say this, but you really can't overuse it because it is such a gentle fertilizer. Uh, but if you start a system going of collecting it and composting it, and the ideal would be to get a year ahead, um, you'll have an endless supply of not only free fertilizer, um, but excellent fertilizer. Okay, yeah. Yeah, all right. That's a great suggestion. So, all right. Have me, have me a year in advance, huh? Yeah. Well, that's what I do. I mean, obviously, here in Pennsylvania, we collect all our leaves in the fall, and then winter comes. And by the time spring comes, the material has reduced in size, and the bottom is finished. But there's still a lot of unfinished material on the top and the sides. So again, I harvest the bottom, and then um, I turn the unfinished material into one large pile. And by the time we get to fall planting, uh, most of that material is completely composted. Well, great, Mike. All right. Thank you very much. My I pleasure. I appreciate your advice. I've listened a long time. All right. Well, thank you for that, sir. All right. You take care Have now. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and alert everyone that it is time to start getting ready for the upcoming season. Check any leftover seed packets you have carefully and be suspicious of any that are seriously outdated. But don't go germination testing your old tomato seeds just yet because we'll be right back to tackle root-eating aphids and take more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA.
Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host coming up later in the show. Did you know that there are aphids that attack your plants underground? We'll explain what they are and how to deal with them after lots more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Nina, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks, Mike. How are you? I'm just ducky. Thanks for asking, (laughs) Nina. How are you? I'm doing well. I am eagerly anticipating planting season in Hillsborough, New Jersey. Okay, very good. Hillsborough, give me a break here. Where are you? Where's Hillsborough? Oh, Hillsborough is in central New Jersey. Okay, central New Jersey. You know, there's been some controversy over whether that even exists. (laughs) Well, it does. <laughs> yeah. I'll take, yes. I'll take your word for it. All right. What can we okay, do for thanks. Nina in central New Jersey? I am calling to talk taters. Okay. Um, I'm looking to um, boost my potato production in my garden. I have a couple of good-sized plots in a community garden, mm-hmm. and I've been growing potatoes for years, and I haven't been really giving a lot of thought to it. Um I've been more lucky, (laughs) I think, than anything. So I'd like to learn a little bit more so um, I can get a better harvest. I think you may not only have been lucky, but you've discovered that potatoes are one of the easiest things to grow. They really are a grow-your-own, grows-itself edible out in the garden. So it's really hard to miss. Um, yes, and I they grow- come with a treasure hunt. <laughs> oh, I know. I love it. Um, yes. I always grow potatoes. I don't think I've ever skipped a year of growing potatoes. And I pref- I have come to prefer over time uh, the red potatoes or the gold mm-hmm. potatoes, such as Yukon Gold. And there are wonderful gourmet mixtures out there. I think there's a potato called rose gold that has uh, red skin and that bright yellow flesh. Um, And then there's the reverse. Yeah, there are uh, golden potatoes that are red inside. And I am led to believe that they are the two most nutritious potatoes. Um, The potato everybody thinks of is the russet, um, which is a long-season potato, and it's grown in enormous numbers, especially in Idaho, uh, because it's the French fry potato. It's the one Mm -hmm. that holds its moisture best um, when it gets deep fried. But I don't deep fry my... Go ahead. Sorry. um, I've actually had... Really good luck with um, the purple-blue variety. Um, I, I want to say Adirondack blue. 
Okay. The one with a really dark purple-blue interior. Um, and for whatever reason, they grow best. Um, second after that is the red pot- potatoes. So um, I, you know, I'm going to admit this because I'm in a studio and nobody can hit me with rocks or old tomatoes right now. <laughs> but I, I've just never been a fan of the purple potatoes and the variations on that. Do you really enjoy the flavor? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, they're particularly good roasted. Okay. So yeah. when yeah. I grow... Boiled, not so much. Yeah. When I grow, uh, it's all red, all gold, or mixtures. You know, that is uh, a potato that has both hues on it. And um, really, your best friend is loose, deep soil, and it drains well, and has a pretty high compost composition. Uh, Potatoes are a surprisingly hungry crop. And if you go looking for what do I feed my potatoes, uh, and you look at 30 different articles, the answer is, well, everything. You know, this one's saying nitrogen. This one's saying potassium. This one's saying magnesium. Oh, wait a minute. Here's a calcium over here. Um. So rather than go nuts with 18 bags of granulated organic fertilizer, I think you get all of that in well-made compost. And there's just something about compost that plants react to wonderfully. And, of course, it protects against disease. Now, really, one of the only tips I have about growing potatoes is that you, um, well, first of all, potatoes have been touted for generations as being planted in hills, which is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. (laughs) One of the only things you have to worry about with potatoes is that the tubers don't break the surface of the soil and become exposed to sunlight because that part of the potato then turns green and gets toxic. And if enough of the, uh, of the potato is affected thusly, uh, it's really a potato for composting or, you know, feeding to the chickens or to the worms or something. Because once it's more than half green, it, it's, it's too toxic for humans. If there's just a little green spot on it, you can cut that off and the rest of the potato is fine. But rather than planting hills... I plant in my raised beds, and then over the course of the season, I build up the soil around the potato plant to make sure that they stay well covered if they start to wonder what it's like in the outside world and move upward, which they do. Mm-hmm. Then the only other thing you need to do is keep an eye out for the flowers, which are absolutely wonderful. Most people don't even realize the potatoes flower. But they do. They send up this central stalk, and they have these almost miniature pansy-looking flowers um, that reflect the color or colors of the potatoes growing underground. It's great. Red potatoes will give you red or pink flowers, gold. They have this buttery yellow. So you should definitely await that and appreciate it, maybe even take some pictures Um, But as soon as those flowers start to fade, you want to pinch them off right away 
so that all the energy of the potato uh, goes into growing bigger and better tubers. Um, if you okay. let it go to seed, that's that's a whole two hours of explanation. Uh, but <laughs> nobody who's ever done it was happy that they did. And then okay. um, you have two choices. Potatoes are one of those crops that can be harvested at any size, like carrots. So um, I think the rule is three to four weeks after you pinch off the flowers, you can pull up one of your plants and have what are called new potatoes. These are smaller in size than they would get if left alone, but they have incredible flavor, intensity, and they have a better ratio of skin uh, to flesh that provides a lot more fiber than a fully grown potato. So I always try to harvest a couple of new potatoes and uh, let the others grow until the plant dies off. Matter of fact, for your main crop, it's better to let the plant die off but sit there and then harvest after your first good frost because that'll concentrate hmm. the sugars okay. in the potatoes. Uh, but my absolute okay. favorite thing when I pull up those new potatoes is to pick a perfect size one. I have a bucket of clean cold water next to me. I wash the potato off right there and I bite into it right out there in the kitchen mm -hmm. like it was a fresh ear right. of sweet corn. Uh, that's the only way you can ever really taste a potato. Potatoes, of course, are storage crops. So by the time, you know, most people eat them, a lot of their sugars have converted to starches. But when you eat one fresh out of the garden, uh, they're sweet and juicy. I mean, uh, people don't believe it, but you got to try it. It's a whole different thing, taters out of the garden. It really, really is. Yeah. All right. So I hope that was some help. And I hope you have a great harvest this season. And maybe I'll try a purple potato this year. <laughs> Roast it with a little salt, pepper, and rosemary. Yeah. Always rosemary. Good. They're really delicious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All Great. Right. Thank you so much, Mike. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. I love talking to taters. Potatoes? Potatoes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Take thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break and do an in the news for you. This is a weird one, cats and kittens. It's not exactly about gardening, but it is about the environment, and it's science fiction wacky. Um, the headline from the New York Times in a story by Kara Buckley, Could a sunshade cool the planet? With Earth at its hottest point in recorded history, 
humans are struggling to find a way to fix that and lower the planet's temperature. One idea is to create a huge sunshade, I'm not making this up, and send it to a faraway point between the Earth and the sun to block a small but critical amount of solar radiation, enough to counter global warming. Scientists have calculated that if just shy of 2% of the sun's radiation is blocked, that would be enough to cool the planet by 2.7 degrees and keep Earth within acceptable margins of climate control um, hopes. This idea has been at the outer fringes of conversations about climate solutions for years. But as the crisis accelerates, interest in sun shields has been gaining momentum, with more researchers offering up variations. There's even a foundation dedicated to promoting solar shields. Now, a recent study led by the University of Utah explored scattering dust deep into space, while a team at MIT is looking into creating a shield made of, quote, space bubbles, whatever that means. And then last summer, an astronomer at the Institute for Astronomy at the University of Hawaii published a paper that suggested tethering a big solar sun shield to a repurposed asteroid. I think we bring in Bruce Willis at this point. Now, scientists led by a physics professor and the director of the Asher Space Research Institute say they're ready to build a prototype shade to show how the idea would work. Now, to block the necessary amount of solar radiation, the shade would have to be about 1 million square miles. That's roughly the size of Argentina. A shade that big would weigh at least 2.5 million tons. Too heavy to launch into space by itself. So the project would have to involve a series of smaller shades. They would not completely block the sun's light, but rather cast slightly diffused shade onto Earth. The team is ready to design a prototype shade of 100 square feet and is sinking between 10 million and 20 million to fund the demonstration. And, of course, there's naysayers who are worried that, you know, meteor showers and space debris are going to rip it apart. Um, but I found this idea, Isaac Asimov, fascinating. Wouldn't it be amazing if science were actually able to solve its own problems? And again, this is almost word for word from an article originally appeared in the New York Times by Kara Buckley. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody that I will soon appear at the Connecticut Flower and Garden Show at the Hartford Convention Center. I'll answer all your garden questions live and in person on Friday afternoon, February 23rd, and then deliver important advice about tomato growing, composting, and raised bed building on Saturday the 24th. 
But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with ways to control root-eating aphids and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a few minutes, I'll tell you all about an insect pest you may not have heard of before. We're all familiar with the aphids that love to destroy our rose bushes. But did you know there are aphids that do their damage underground? We'll be on top of the root of that problem after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. Ralph. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Well, thanks for making it, Ralph. How are you? Um, great. Um, beautiful day. 62 degrees. I'm out in the garden in mid-February. And it is the same temperature as we record your call in Pennsylvania. But where are you, man? I'm in uh, High Falls, New York. Okay. County. Uh, how far upstate? Uh, 90 miles outside of the city. Okay. The city. How dare you? You know, where I live... You know which city I'm talking about. Well, yes, because you're a New Yorker. But where I live, when I say I'm going into the city, I mean Philly. And somebody next to me can say the city and they're going into Manhattan uh, because they're equidistant almost from here. Anyway, we'll have that argument here, Mike. Yeah. Enough geography. What can we do you for? I'm looking to plant rhinoculus this year and I've done some research. They seem a little bit finicky, but doable. And from what I've gathered, I should soak them, sprout them and then put them in the ground. But I'm looking for maybe dates and any pointers to have success this first year. Okay, I'm no expert on these bulbs, but the first thing I'm thinking is they're not winter hardy in your area. No, no, treat them as annuals. Well, that's one option. Um, Your other option would be to either um, dig them up at the end of the season and store them over the winter and replant them in the spring. The advantage Mm -hmm. to doing so, as opposed to using new bulbs every year, um, is the bulbs would be larger, uh, they would produce more flowers, and perhaps even kind of get associated with your climate and not be so finicky about cool soil at the beginning and the end. The other option is to grow them in containers 
and then bring the containers in in the winter. So there's no digging. You know, you would just drag the containers into an unheated garage or basement, as long as it's not going to get freezing in there. Um, so that's that's the biggest thing to me. Now, I've never planted them, but the, okay. the soaking before planting, to me, yeah. that's absolutely imperative when you buy a bare root plant like bare root mm -hmm. roses or shrubs. I mean, especially if you're buying mail order, uh, bare root plants are so much easier and less expensive because you're not paying for the shipment of all that soil. But the plants, uh, uh, raspberry cane, same thing. The plants are generally dehydrated. And one way to give them a good start is to soak them in water um, for like 12 to 24 hours before you plant them. Um, mm -hmm. But you say that that's what you've been told to do by the bulb seller or whatever? From what I've read, soak for four hours, changing the water every hour, and then put them into moist soil and then cover it with maybe an inch of moist soil, throw them in the closet for two weeks, dark, cool, dry, at which point I want to throw them in the ground. I just want to, I guess, I'm not going to go the pot route because I've got about 200 of them. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to go straight into the ground, and then I've got some, like, hoops and, like, warming cloths, I guess, or plastic to keep the soil warm on colder days. I'm looking for, like, what days I should do it, and then with the digging up, when would you suggest digging them up? Okay, so who gave it, where, where was this advice from? Was it the bulb seller? an extension service, some bum on the street? The bulb seller. Okay, good. Then follow their advice. Um, I think okay. forget about season extension devices. These things bloom pretty rapidly um, once okay. they're planted into warm soil. Um, what you can do is clear the area where you're going to plant them. If Clear the area where you're going to plant them. If there's any kind of mulch or any debris on the surface of the soil, scrape that off, rake that off so that the soil can warm up naturally. And then mm -hmm. in your region, I would not put them out uh, before June 1st. I would plant them oh, on. Wow. Well, I mean, cowards win in these games. So think about okay. it. You, you know, you got all of June, all of July, all of August, and who knows how much of September. I mean, if that's not enough for them, they're just not for you. But if you put them out too early and they get a cold shock, not freezing, but just not warm enough for them, you will set flowering back by two weeks to a month, whereby if you, you know, just distract yourself with shiny objects and put them out two weeks later than you thought, you'll be ahead of the game. Okay. They're not too sensitive to high temperatures? Uh, no, I don't believe so. You know? Okay. But All again, right. I mean, I would follow the advice of the bulb seller, and if you go through, you know, a summertime heat wave with a drought, I would keep them well watered. You know, they're, they're these okay. kind of fleshy plants. Um, that yeah. like a lot of water. A lot of their relatives are invasive plants 
um, that grow next to streams and swamps and creeks um, or just soil that doesn't drain well. So I would think your biggest job is to hold your horses, then make sure they get plenty of moisture over the summertime. All right. That's very doable. All right. Good luck to you, sir. Send us pictures. I will. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for your help. My pleasure. Bye-bye. As promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we are tongue-in-cheek calling when aphids are the root of the problem. Aletha in Rochester, Michigan writes, Root aphids were unknowingly introduced into my garden last season from lettuce plants I purchased at my local farmer's market. When I discovered the problem, I placed the affected plants in the garbage. As I did more reading, I discovered that root aphids can overwinter. So I removed and trashed all of the remaining plants and soil from that particular two by six elevated bed with the intent on replacing it with new soil this spring. I left the shovel I used in the bed because I wasn't sure if it would spread the problem to my other beds. With the new planting season just around the corner, I'd like to know what I can do to prevent the root aphids from reappearing in that bed or any of my seven adjacent beds. Can you advise? Sue in South Arkansas adds, one of my flower beds is infested with root aphids. How can I eradicate them? How often should I retreat the bed to be sure they're gone? The flower beds were nice and healthy. Then my mom bought some ornamental cabbage from the store and planted them in the flower bed. Within a few days, her lettuce was dying and the ornamental cabbages were withering. Normally, everything she plants thrives, so this was concerning. She dug down underneath and found that the plant's roots weren't even attached to the dirt anymore. Then she found the little creatures. We looked up pictures and narrowed it down to root aphids. She began treating the bed with anything she could find, diluted Dawn dish soap, neem oil, etc. When they didn't work, she tried something with pyrethrin in it, but the critters just won't die. She currently has three Ziploc bags containing some of the aphids and has been trying different things to see what will kill them, as she is afraid that they're going to venture into her other beds. She's careful to sanitize her tools so that she doesn't unknowingly spread their eggs. She is at her wit's end. Her? Imagine how the poor aphids feel. Good thing she didn't have any napalm laying around. Anyway, you have to be careful with products containing any type of pyrethrum, as one form, which is collected from the dried leaves of a specific variety of daisy, is natural and organically approved. But the others are sound-alike man-made products. Their spellings are frustratingly alike, just a few different letters here and there. And all forms are toxic to bees. Perhaps more importantly, these pesticides kill insects that munch on the sprayed plant parts. They aren't labeled to affect anything underground. However, it occurs to me that a liquid solution 
a pyrethrum, that's the old original organically approved form of this compound, could be very useful when used as a soil drench. To try this, water the area well, wait until sundown, and then pour the drench around the root zones of the affected plants. When used out in the open, sunlight and air quickly degrade the effectiveness of pyrethrum, which is why the more stable chemical versions were developed. But once it's underground and protected from the elements, it should remain effective much longer. Just to be safe, lightly mulch the soil surface with some compost or screen topsoil after the application to make sure the drench isn't compromised by sunlight. A solution of Dawn or any other brand name dishwashing soap or even professionally made insecticidal soap should be avoided. Soaps and oils only kill insects that are visible and become covered by the sprays. They have no residual effect, and using any kind of a soap solution as a soil drench could kill your plants. Neem oil is mostly used as a suffocating spray, but it does have some residual action. You may want to try making a drench with it and testing that drench on one plant to make sure there are no adverse effects. As to the aphids themselves, they are very small, about the size of most mites. They can enter your garden through purchased plants in infected soil or compost you purchased and or by flying from plant to plant when they reach the end of their life cycle and come above ground to lay their eggs. Ants love to eat their, quote, honeydew and have been observed moving them around from plant to plant. So be suspicious of any unusual ant activity. All sources agree that any infested plants you discover should be trashed immediately, along with some of the soil around their roots. And yes, wash shovels and trowels with soapy water to avoid any hitchhikers. Finally, I really like the idea of using beneficial nematodes against them. These microscopic creatures are fierce predators of soft-bodied underground pests like lawn grubs, and I expect they would go after root aphids with great zeal. They're shipped and or sold in a sponge-like container that contains millions of the underground heroes. Wait until dark and then water them into the affected areas. You should see results fairly quickly. Note, they pose no threat to earthworms, pets, people, etc. And finally, be careful if you do an online search result. Make sure it is specific to root aphids. Despite using the word root every time, more than half of my search results were about above-ground aphids. Well, that sure was a dire warning about underground aphids now, wasn't it? Luckily, you can read this awesome advice over at your leisure or your leisure at the Gardens Alive section of the Gurneys website. That's G-U-R-N-E-Y-S. Please visit the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page 
for a direct link to this amazing information. Yikes, my producer is threatening to aggravate my aphids if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444. Missives to our regular email address are having trouble reaching me right now. But those emails, the YBYG at WLVT.org, are reaching our producer. So it's cool. Please still include your phone number and location. You'll find all of our contact information, plus audio of this show, audio and video of previous shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a public radio show and podcast produced and delivered to you every week from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when Ben Franklin asked him to hang on to a kite string so he could go inside and dry off and probably get a beer. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work and keep up with what's happening with our show, with the question of the week, and what your fellow gardeners are doing at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Jasmine Griffin. Our irreplaceable audio editor is the lovely Jonas Bowen. As always, we thank Zach the Takwisneski and Ducky the Dancing Duck for something. Our beloved and beleaguered CEO is Tim Fallon. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I'll continue looking for my seed starting mix and heating mats and rooting through my seed packets to see what I might need to order for this spring until I see you again next week.